Welcome to the Immigrations Podcast, where we capture the unique stories of Asian undocumented individuals living in the United States. My name is Chu Hong, and I'm a Korean immigrant activist. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Immigrations Podcast. Today, we have Ha Young Choi as our guest. Ha Young is a Korean American immigrant based in Chicago, Illinois. She grew up in the South Bay area with her older sister and parents before moving to San Diego to complete her undergrad studies at UC San Diego. She recently graduated from Harvard School of Public Health with a master's in health and social behavior and currently works for the Brave Study, or also known as Building Community Raising All Voices for Health Equity, to investigate the social and political determinants of undocumented immigrant health. Hi, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Um, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, too. Thank you. So I uh, first met your sister or so at the Anza Community College, where we talked about immigration issues at an event. And I believe we uh, met organically through our shared spaces, like Aspire. And obviously, we grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, but we haven't had a chance to catch up. And so I think the podcast is a great excuse to uh, get to know you and um, excited to learn about uh, your story. So if you can share your journey as an immigrant and how did you get involved in the immigrant movement? Yeah, for sure. Um, but first, I have to say, I wish my sister was here because I feel like <laughs> she's like the entire reason why I you know, even came out about being undocumented and got more involved and, you know, just um, and got introduced to these spaces. Uh, so maybe you should invite her next time. Absolutely. <laughs> but to tell you a little bit about my story, uh, I was born in South Korea. And um, I think similar to a lot of East Asian immigrants, um, my family members, they were affected pretty heavily by the East Asian financial crisis um, in 1998. And um, even though that was not the direct impetus for our move, um, it did kind of trigger like some financial hardship in my family that ultimately led my parents to believe that my sister and I wouldn't be able to afford a good education in Korea um, for you know, any listeners out there who might have a sense of Korean education system, you know, it's great, but there's a lot of um, private tutoring and, you know, extracurriculars going on in the background. And my parents just weren't confident that they would be able to financially afford that for my sister and me. And so they decided to move to the U.S. Um, so that my sister and I could have a better education and also so that they could um, find some economic opportunities for themselves. Uh, my mom, she, you know, graduated from a two-year technical college and my dad uh, never graduated from college in Korea. So um, I think they, they really just came here for the American dream as um, a lot of immigrants perceive it to be then. Uh, and then, so my dad initially moved to the U.S. first um, to scout out a place for my family and uh, I to just settle down. So while my sister, my mom and I were in Korea, my dad was just kind of like looking for work uh, in the middle of Philly and then to Los Angeles and then 
finally he settled down in the Bay Area because our family friend, um, they had a rice cake factory uh, in the South Bay Area. So my dad started working for them. A year later, we were reunited. Um, and, you know, all of us, we entered the U.S. legally with a visa. Um, but ultimately, for this is a long story, but ultimately our immigration sponsors, they committed fraud um, and we were not eligible for a green card anymore. And so oh, no. um, it was interesting. I think, um, you know, a lot of people when they are visa overstays, um, they find out through, you know, processes like applying for a driver's license or applying to college. Um, but for my sister and me, it was pretty, you know, we saw it coming. <laughs> it was like clear as mm. we knew that our sponsors had committed fraud. We tried to take action to prevent um, what we saw might be coming. And my parents really kept us in the loop throughout all of that. And so, you know, I think as young as when I was in middle school, I had anticipated being undocumented. Of course, I think the implications of that, it wasn't clear until I like really went through it. But um, yeah, we, we had a vision of what was to come. And um, yeah, I think that's also why my sister was like pretty radicalized and like really invested in immigration stuff at an early age. Um, because she saw it coming, because my parents were transparent with us, and also because, like, every Asian immigrant, like, we had to translate all those, like, lawyer papers, right? So <laughs> At a very young age, even in the middle school. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was all very normalized, and, you know, that's kind of how I describe my immigration story. Um, and then, I guess, to go on, you know, in 2010, I think that was when the first DREAM Act was introduced. Uh, I remember my sister and I being really disappointed that that didn't pass. Um, our next glimmer of hope was um, when DACA passed. But unfortunately, because we had appealed our green card rejection, we were kind of in the limbo status that kind of maintained our legal, legal status a little bit past DACA. Um, what do you mean by that? So DACA was announced in 2012, in the summer of 2012. Uh -huh. Um, and you had to have been undocumented before the policy was announced. Right. Yeah. And because I had maintained my limbo status for a month after DACA was announced, I was too oh. legal to be eligible for DACA. Really? Wow. And that's very interesting. Okay. So currently I still am undocumented without DACA, even though a lot of people mistakenly think that, you know, I am DACA eligible. Um, I, I would be had it not been for that, you know, one month deadline. But um, that's kind of where I am right now um, in terms of like future immigration stuff. I, I mean, I think I will probably, you know, hopefully get married to my partner um, and adjust status that way. That's how my sister is planning to do it right now. So, yeah, that's kind of my long story. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for letting me know. I also didn't know that um uh you didn't receive daca yeah and i'm curious to know um your reaction when you find out about how um you cannot qualify for daca and what is it like to live um as an individual 
as an undocumented without DACA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think this is another reason why I think you should invite my sister to your podcast is my sister was kind of like the guinea pig. So because DACA is pretty expensive to apply for, and especially legally on paper, I think my sister and I are like the same case. Um, And so we decided to experiment in quotes um, with my sister first. Um, And she was the one who found out that she would not be eligible for DACA. Um, And she found out through, um, you know, the UC legal services, which, you know, UC students are very fortunate to, you know, still have access to and receive. Um, And, you know, because she was not eligible, I just decided to not apply because it would be a waste of my money. And I also didn't want to run the risk of applying for it and I guess being known by the government, if you will. Um, I think that's a little naive to for me to say. I think they already know I'm here and I'm here illegally, but um, I just didn't want to put myself through that pain. Um, I think it was quite a shock to my sister, really big disappointment for my family, um, especially because in the process of trying to argue for eligibility for DACA, my sister had to prove her illegality, which is very ironic, right? So like, we were eligible because we were not illegal enough. (laughs) So she had to basically throw my parents under the bus and say like, here's why like we did, you know, X, Y, Z things that made us illegal. Like, please give me DACA. (laughs) Another level of like um, appealing to the government for scraps, right? Uh, It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, and to answer your second question about what it's like living without DACA, uh, I think it it came in stages. I think the first stage was like just being bitter and angry, not being able to afford the same opportunities as citizens and permanent residents. And then also another level like DACA recipients, um, not being able to contribute in my community, being denied opportunities, like applying for things because they didn't have rules for me. Um, I'm like, oh, I'm undocumented, but don't have DACA. And they're like, what do you mean you don't have DACA? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I think people conflate the two. They just think dreamers, you must have DACA. There's actually millions of dreamers um, and newer generations that don't have DACA. And so I would apply to these opportunities that I was looking forward to and um, they would accept me and then I would get rescinded because they realized I didn't have DACA. So it, it was just like cycles of that, um, even until, you know, recently in grad school and whatnot. And so denial, anger was the first part, bitterness. But then I think as I, I guess, got older and through my research began to understand like how wonderful and um, beneficial DACA was and how important it was for people who had received it, you know, I started to change my mindset a little bit and like kind of redirect my anger and kind of my energy towards things that are a little more generative and productive. Um, So that's kind of where I am right now. Now I think, um, you know, I really feel for DACA recipients because of the litigations and the fact that it's in limbo, all the uncertainty, um, that's something that I never had to contend with as someone who never received DACA. And so it's interesting. I have a 
I am more comfortable with being undocumented than I think than maybe somebody who received DACA as they became you know, a young adult and had to just recently contend with all this um, chaos, like legislative right. chaos. So I don't know if that's a pro or con, but you know, a lot of undocumented people have survived without DACA um, and we're still figuring that out right now. And it's just more important for me to like, I guess, progress immigrant rights and immigrant health you know, as a whole without buying into or perpetuating or um, letting all the artificial legal divisions further divide the undocumented community, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you know, I'm also coming from like mixed status families and, and um, it's um, when I went to South Korea for the first time in over 13 years at the time of traveling to South Korea, I was using advanced parole. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a sense of uh, privilege to go to South Korea as an undocumented individual. Uh, but when I went there, I also had this deep sense of guilt because I was like the only person that I could go back and visit my alien grandmother and my relatives. Mm-hmm. And it's a very complex and complicated um, dynamic within the family, especially if you have mixed status family. Um, But, you know, like hearing your story, you know, I think, you know, despite of being undocumented, um, you have um, really um, gone into higher, farther in higher education and recently graduated from um, really prestigious university. And I'm curious to know um, your experience um, as an undocumented individual uh, getting higher education, particularly you, uh, my understanding, you started in a community college mm-hmm. um, in, in the South Bay area and you transferred to uh, UC San Diego yeah. and now uh, recently graduated from Harvard University. And so if you could share a little bit about your experience in uh, in the context of resources for undocumented students attending those different institutions. Yeah, um, I'll definitely share that. But before I do, I just, I don't know if people can still access your documentary, High Money. Um, yeah, they can. That really touched me. Um, and I feel like I got, you know, secondhand pleasure from just watching you be able to go back to Korea and visit your grandmother. Um, so yeah, just doing a plug-in for Ju's body of work there. Um, but yeah, in terms of my education, you know, I think I was really lucky in that my parents um, really, really valued education. And um, they, they moved to Cupertino, which is like a pretty affluent, like really privileged area, South Bay area, so that my sister and I could get a really good education, you know, and they worked their butts off to make sure that, you know, we could afford rent there and, you know, attend school there. And they made it feel like I was not missing anything while growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, I was completely oblivious to the fact that we might've been struggling or were undocumented. So, you know, I have to admit, like, I think I grew up as a very privileged individual um, in Cupertino where, you know, I grew up around friends where like, 
going to college was not like if, it was just like where, like it was an expectation. Mm. And I know that's not the case for all undocumented individuals. Um, And I also didn't have to work that much uh, when I was young. You know, I would sometimes go to the rice cake factory during like busy holidays to help my parents. But um, for the most part, my parents were working and that was sufficient to um, maintain our family. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, That said, you know, I think in high school, I struggled because, like I said before, I was aware that I would be undocumented starting in middle school. And so in high school, in this hyper-competitive environment, I just didn't see the point of trying really hard in school. Mm. I couldn't do anything with my degree if I wasn't even sure I could financially afford college because um, the DREAM Act wouldn't be enacted. The California DREAM Act wouldn't be enacted until I had already started college. And so, yeah, I'm not gonna lie, like I don't think I was the best student in high school, Um, but I think my saving grace, my sister, she decided to go to community college to De Anza College and she kind of like modeled for me that it was okay to go to community college i know that sounds really weird of course it's okay to go to community college but i think in the environment i grew up that was not okay it was like looked down upon there was like this Mm. uh, like oh you couldn't go to a four-year university right away but like my sister totally shattered that you know myth and went to community college and kind of um, engaged in a lot of campus activities and student activism there and showed me what it was like to um, really demand um, access to higher education um, and also just learn about your own history um, with respect to other communities in the US. Um, And that really just, really woke me up (laughs) to reality. Um, I ended up kind of following in her footsteps, going to community college, um, being active on campus, being civically engaged and um, learning about different social justice issues. And then um, I transferred to UC San Diego um, and I ended up working at the Cross-Cultural Center at UCSD. I was really lucky to um, you know, be an AB 540 student um, and afford in-state tuition. Um, By that time, a lot of student activists um, who had come before me had already established uh, Undocumented Student Services Center at UCSD. So I got um, support through there. Um, I'm not saying that it was perfect, (laughs) but uh, I had a lot of like internal advocates, like people who were willing to advocate for me and fight for me beyond what the rules allowed them to or beyond what Mm. the laws suggested they could do. Um, What are some examples that you can provide? Yeah, so (laughs) I won't say who or what, but um, within UCSD, they like made a scholarship or like a research opportunity for me so that I could be paid for the same work that I was doing as like other interns. And, you know, that's like, that's not something that a lot of people would do. (laughs) Um, I'm really grateful for it because um, as somebody without DACA, it's incredibly hard for me to find professional opportunities. Um, And so that's really, you know, just helped me build up my resume and 
just learn professional skills like every college student and growing adult has to do. Um, of course, after I graduated from UCSD, the fallout, it was really tough. Um, you know, I think transitioning is hard enough as it is with DACA or even for citizens, it's really hard. You're like, what am I gonna do after college? Um, for me, it was also really hard. Um, I ended up to my fortune working with um, Dr. May Sudanarasa at UCLA School of Public Health um, to just assist her in studies about undocumented immigrants. Um, and she is like a really big proponent of um, community engaged studies. So she likes to work with undocumented people. And that's kind of like where my skill sets come in. Um, so I have been working with her since um, after graduating from college, um, throughout my gap years, and then during grad school. Um, so in addition to that, you know, I was volunteering and I was also working at my parents' restaurant um, in Oakland. So that was pretty fun. Um, I think while I was, you know, in those gap years, though, I, I, I was having a hard time. I'm not going to lie. Mm. I think it was mentally really difficult for me to just experience life without DACA post-graduation. Um, mm. I think college is like one of those spaces where undocumented people with or without DACA can kind of pursue what they want uninhibited, just freely. There's a lot of advocates um, and you don't really have to think about, you know, threats of deportation because, you know, schools um, along with churches or hospitals, they're protected spaces as defined by DHS and ICE. And so, you know, coming out of that, I was, I just felt like naked, like I have no more protections and I didn't know what right. to do. Um, I ended up applying to medical schools that year. Um, it was really challenging because not a lot of medical schools accept students without DACA. Um, and I also applied to a school in Singapore. Um, fortunately, I was accepted, but I actually turned down the offer because I felt like that's not why I don't want to go into medicine just for the sake of practicing medicine. I really wanted mm. to practice medicine within the undocumented community and kind of be an advocate for immigrant populations in the United States. Um, I might have been a little naive because I know there's a lot of uh, migrant worker population in Singapore as well. Um, there are issues there that I can work on, but I was pretty adamant about staying in the US. Uh, I ended up kind of curving my path a little bit and then applying to uh, master's in public health programs. Uh, I was really lucky to um, get accepted to Harvard. Um, I completed my MPH during the pandemic and <laughs> I recently graduated and I'm back to working for the BRAVE study right now, yeah. And I'm curious to know what prompt you um, or sparked your interest in public health Mm -hmm. and, and if you can tell us a little bit about what is Brave Study mm -hmm. and uh, are there any preliminary findings or report that is might be interesting that you could share with us? Yeah, um, so, you know, I think I got interested in public health because, you know, as undocumented immigrants, 
for the longest time, um, until the last five years or so, we didn't have access to Medi-Cal, which is the state version of uh, Medicaid in California. Um, and even now we're still expanding Medicaid step-by-step step to other age groups. Um, and I remember growing up, I didn't have access to care. <laughs> um, mm. I, I could never go to the doctor, even when I wanted to play sports. Um, I would go to like the local travel clinic to get a physical exam. Um, and, you know, I remember while growing up, um, like my mom, she would get really sick. And for some reason, my parents would tell us not to call 911. Um, mm. And if we did have to go to the hospital, like we would go there on our own feet, you know? <laughs> um, or like when my dad got into a pretty severe car accident, he used to work as a taxi driver in LA. Um, he wanted to flee the scene of the accident instead of call 911 or, you know, have the police come or um, the ambulance come. And I was, you know, just like baffled, like why? <laughs> why is right. this happening? And, you know, I think once I became undocumented, I realized like what I was not entitled to uh, and what that could lead to. Um, and so just seeing how unequal um, people's outcomes could be, depending on who you were, what status you had, where you lived, what policies you were subject to, that like really irked me that made me angry <laughs> and yeah. so you know public health kind of gets to the root of those issues um it really looks at you know the spread of health and disease across populations see what patterns there are and um try to understand kind of beyond like the biomedical causes of certain people uh, of, of people's health right so you know do you have insurance do you live in a zip code where you're like really exposed to hazardous materials or, you know, are you living in a state that, um, you know, has abortion access, things like that. So there's various social and political determinants of health and myself as an undocumented immigrant, I was interested in public health because um, there's a lot of health disparities in the undocumented community. There's also just like a lot of things unknown about the health status of undocumented immigrants because we're really hard to surveil, right? Like we like to live in the shadows, that's what they say. And so you know, me being an undocumented health researcher, I think can really get at those answers and um, try to, I guess, provide evidence to improve like protocols or policies um, at institutional and community, municipal, state, federal levels to make sure that you know, we are creating environments where it's healthy for people to live, uh, where we're not creating health disparities. So that's kind of, you know, why I like public health. In terms of the BRAVE study, um, it is a community-based uh, study. So it's uh, researchers combined with like a community advisory board of undocumented people, um, experts in health policy, education, um in medicine and we basically collaborate to um create public health studies that we can administer within the state and um again like i said make 
suggestions for policies um, that will improve the health of undocumented people. So you know, I think just that there's also the aspect of community building, just making sure that undocumented people, you know, are connected to each other and have the opportunity to like discuss and learn about their health. I think that's also another facet that, you know, moving forward in the brave study I want to do. But um, if you want to, I don't know, do we have time to go over some like yeah, of our findings? Please. Is that okay? Um, so I can share with you some of the things that, you know, we shared with our community advisory board the, um, just this past summer. And so, you know, one of our recent studies, we were kind of looking at how social ties and social capital affects the mental health of undocumented Asian Americans. And so, you know, there's different types of ties. Some are called bonding. Those are like ties within like your small network of maybe like friends and families. There's also things called bridging ties, which are, you know, ties that occur across networks. So for example, like you and I, we might not be, uh, we might not have a bonding tie, right? Cause we're not like within like the same family or friend group, but we have had a bridging tie through like Aspire or, you know, through my sister who went to school and, you know, learned about you know, undocumented people at another school. So, you know, we kind of measured those different types of ties in API and documented young adults and found that both of them are really critical for um, facilitating better mental health. Um, when, and we also, you know, I don't think this is a surprise to you, but DACA is like a really good facilitator of creating those ties. Um, you can imagine if DACA grants you access to educational and economic opportunities, like it also gives you the opportunity to make social ties, right? And ties are really important because, you know, you can think of them as like conduits for resources and information. And so it's kind of proving like the strength of um, communities and the importance of building communities. Um, and another study we had, um, we kind of assess like online versus offline social capital. So it's kind of exactly as you might imagine it to be online being like on the internet and then offline being like maybe through your church or through, you know, like a school organization. Um, and we found that those with DACA had more offline mm -hmm. capital. Those without DACA had more online capital. Um, and offline capital was really important for um, kind of decreasing your depressive symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these are like really broad generalizations. And I don't want to like, you know, underplay the importance of this creating online spaces for engagement and connection. They're really important, um, especially now that, you know, the pandemic is here and a lot of our interactions have moved online. But you know, I think the takeaway from that study was that, you know, it's really important to create linkages between our offline and online spaces and um, just further develop our communities to make sure that we're improving our mental health collectively. Um, and then there was one paper that, you know, I worked on really recently, which was that um, the legacy and, you know, ongoing immigration enforcement is really harmful to public health. Um, and the way I examined that was by looking at people's 
perspectives about contact tracing. So contact tracing is when a public health official might give you a call to say that you know you were exposed to COVID um, and you need to take XYZ precautions and they might refer you to XYZ services if you have um, certain symptoms or needs, whether it's medical or social. Um, and we found that a lot of undocumented people, uh, especially those who didn't have DACA or were living with people without DACA, they were very reluctant to share uh, complete or accurate information about their contacts. That makes sense, right? So if a contact tracer asks, like, who are you living with? Like, where do they work? Um, things like that. You know, I might get a little antsy as an undocumented person. And so, you know, this kind of research is just proving that, you know, immigration enforcement and exclusive immigration laws, they're not only harmful for undocumented people, but public health as a whole. So when people say like, you know, we're not all safe and healthy until everyone is safe and healthy, like that's absolutely true um, and more true during the pandemic, right? Um, and we're doing some more research regarding um, reproductive health care and health care discrimination, but uh, I don't want to bore you with too no, much. No, not at all. This <laughs> is super health. interesting. You know, yeah. there's a few questions uh, that I have actually. Yeah. Um, the first thing is, I'm curious to know, uh, with, with, with your study, um, my understanding is that you're particularly focusing on undocumented Asian American community members. And one of, one of the main challenges that organizations in general to identify and reach out and recruit um, undocumented and Asian immigrant communities. And how did you yeah. kind of uh, did like outreach strategies and um, get get those uh, participants mm -hmm. to involve in the study? Yeah, um, you know, I would probably say like you have better outreach outcomes than we do as researchers because you're more plugged into the community. Um, and ultimately, we a lot of our recruitment is school-based, okay. so we work with undocumented student centers, um, and for schools that might not have those centers through like other offices, like the international student or like the cross-cultural center, um, to spread the word about our studies. Um, that said, even though I think maybe like fifty percent of undocumented students in the UC system are like. Asian American, we get such a small number of Asian Americans in our samples, so much that oftentimes we don't have enough power to run our analysis among our Asian undocumented sample. So we end up having to kind of guess, you know, what might be happening in Asian American communities because we just don't have the sample size to draw like impactful conclusions, right? Um, this is why like, it's so important for, um, for researchers to stay connected to the undocumented community. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's a variety of strategies, but, you know, we also like rely on like snowball sampling. So snowball sampling is like when I tap on my sister to tap on her friends and then her friends tap on their friends. And so it's kind of like this uh, trigger effect where uh, undocumented individuals are recruiting each other. Um, you know, that has its limitations, I think, because it's like a non-random sample. 
uh, we can't really make a lot of strong conclusions about the associations we find, but um, that is kind of how we've been going about doing it. Um, I'm sure you can empathize with me how hard it yeah. is to reach undocumented Asian Americans. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I hope um, um, whether this podcast or uh, other way that I can to, to support with the outreach, uh, please feel free to reach out. And I think this is a very important study and much needed, yeah. um, um, especially in this critical time. And Definitely. I'm also interested in about uh, whether the contract uh, tracing and offline support for undocumented individuals. Um, oftentimes, obviously, undocumented individuals, especially people who do not have DACA, do not want to reveal their immigration status and they have distrust mm -hmm. from the government or any um, administrative um, officers. And so how do we uh combat that uh problem and 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 mm -hmm. find a creative way to uh, provide offline support and gain that trust yeah um this is something that i would like to ask undocumented community members i think different people have different comfort levels obviously like me being a public health person <laughs> despite not having DACA, like I trust public health agents to maintain confidentiality. They're also not supposed to ask for immigration status and they will not ask for it. They're not gonna disclose your information to anybody. Um, but I, I also understand like kind of the fear and doubt and mistrust that people might have. Um, I think, you know, one of, I did ask some people in our interview, interviews, like what they recommend to increase trust in their communities. And, you know, they actually said that they might be more inclined to share information with a contact tracer if that contact tracer was affiliated with community organizations. Um, and also if they had learned about contact tracing and their rights when interacting with the contact tracer in advance. So even before being contacted, they want to know about like what the principles of contact tracing are. Um, and I think this was, you know, kind of a failure on behalf of um, like the public health departments, like COVID might've been the first time that an individual might've learned about contact tracing. Um, but, you know, I think, I think the right move should have been for public health surveillance teams to partner with community organizations and let people know like what to expect, right? Like you might have a public health official, you know, call you to ask you how you're doing, um, to remind you to quarantine, to ask you if you have adequate food and water, things like that. So it, you know, there are resources there to help you, but you know, if you don't know anything about it, of course, like you might be mistrustful. I don't blame undocumented people for that. Um, I do think that we, as public health people, like need to do a little more to get closer to the community. Um, so, you know, that's kind of my first thoughts in terms of improving contact tracing programs. Great. And um, do you know um, in Chicago or state of Illinois provide uh, something like Medi-Cal that uh, state of California, that's for the undocumented? 
not undocumented, but DACA recipients mm -hmm. or something along those lines? Yeah. You know, I should know this, but I have been living here for six months and haven't really like looked into that. Um, that said, I do access healthcare through um, a federally qualified health center, uh, which is kind of like a government public health, like community health center that um, provides medical services on like a sliding scale. And so, you know, if you are low income, you will have a really small copay. Um, you can also access medications through their pharmacy, things like that. So there's kind of like that safety net resource. In terms of uh, Medicaid eligibility, I will have to look got into it, that. Got it. And one of, speaking of like health um, and related to undocumented immigration issues, I think oftentimes we do not talk about mental health um, and the trauma mm -hmm. and just um, burned out culture. Um, especially in organizations. I'm curious to know in your in your study or uh, based on your personal experience or observations, um, has there been any link between uh, just being in undocumented immigration status and mental health and how can we, are there like a practices that we should um, follow or any recommendation or tips that you can give us? Yeah. Definitely. Um, to answer one of your questions, yes, there is a link between being undocumented and having poor mental health. It has been proven not only through our study, but other studies. So this has been replicated. This is like, there's a lot of strong evidence for, you know, how the current immigration system is harming immigrants' mental health. Um, and there's, you know, a stronger association in depressive symptoms for those um, who don't have DACA. So DACA is protective. Um, exposure to more deportation or detention or immigration enforcement experiences is also associated with poor mental health. So yeah, there's lots and lots of data for that. Um, personally, yeah, like <laughs> mental health is really, it's, it's difficult. You know, I remember after the 2016 election, really struggling with my mental health, um, deciding to go seek counseling through my university and then losing access to that counseling upon graduating, regaining it in graduate school, but not being able to find a mental health provider who understood what it was like to be undocumented. I cannot explain to you how frustrating it is to have to teach your own therapist about what it's mm. like to be undocumented. That's, I mean, like, I wish they would just understand. Um, I try to be patient with them, but it really helps when you have like somebody who kind of understands the basics and comes to talk to you and with like a trauma informed lens. Um, so yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah, we could have a whole nother podcast episode about mental health and the undocumented community yeah. yeah i don't know do these things resonate with no, you absolutely too? <laughs> absolutely i think that um especially yeah. in 2016 uh when uh during the trump administration i think there's a lot of um stress and got burned mm -hmm. out and i think during that time when i actually got um crohn's disease uh those of you who don't know uh, what crohn's mm -hmm. disease is 
pretty much it's like chronic illness that have an inflammation in my small intestine and that really affected me uh, physically emotionally and mentally and um, i just got burned out and i was just uh, frustrated with the immigration system and the direction that we are heading and so um and lesson learned i i try my best to advocate for uh, mental well-being um i think that we have to take care of ourselves in order to help other people um but you know it's it's incredibly difficult um so i also need to acknowledge that you know because there's so many work that we need to do um but you know also understanding this balance between the just personal work and Mm -hmm. um there's something that i'm still learning and um trying my best to honor my practice yeah it's definitely a tricky balance um when you are an undocumented person doing the work but also going through it yourself um i often you know i i think my research about undocumented health it like fuels me but it also Mm -hmm. wears me out a lot so it is a tricky balance Yeah. yeah Um, I think that uh, I'm slowly wrapping up the podcast, but I would like to um, know if you were to go back to your younger self, um, what would you say to your younger self or what would you give advice to young undocumented individuals um, who were maybe in high school or even middle school? um, uh, uh, What of um, any advice or um, encouragement that you could provide to them? Hmm. I just had like a really silly thought, but I, I forgot to mention during my immigration journey, at one point my parents wanted to give me up for adoption because if I were under somebody else's custody, I wouldn't, you know, become undocumented <laughs> with my family. So if I myself like, hey, offer up, <laughs> You might just do that. <laughs> I know that sounds bad, but right, like, right, right. <laughs> um, but to be oh, sorry, no, no, that's a topic, good advice. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would have, I would have taken yeah. that if you were to give it to me. I know. Yeah, I was just like some sappy kid who like didn't know what she was doing. Like, oh, you're not gonna be my mom. It's like, of course she's going to still be your mom. It's just for papers, you know? (laughs) Um, But anyways, I would tell my younger self to be kind to myself. Um, I think I was really harsh on myself while growing up and bending over backwards to, you know, fulfill everyone's Mm -hmm. wills and impress them because I felt like I needed to prove myself as an undocumented person. I know you talked about this with Salma in the last episode, but um, yeah, I just wish, I mean, this is still something that I tell myself is like, stop being so impressionable. Stop trying to please everybody and impress everyone. Like just be nice to yourself and love yourself and just like seek out what you love and protect what you love. Um, yeah, that's probably what I would tell my younger self and my inner child right now. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And how can community follow your your work? 
uh, whether it's brave study or if they have any questions around public health or just your immigration journey, um, how can they follow you? Um, so whenever we release our findings, we try to post it in a timely manner to our Brave Study website. So it's um, thebravestudy.org. Um, and you find, you know, a lot of our studies on the left-hand tab. Um, you can also just contact us if you want to get involved or learn more about our study. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of like the easiest way to get in touch with me and learn about my work. Yeah. Great. And I'll make sure to um, share the link um, so that uh, folks can follow up. Okay. Well, Hyung, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoy learning more about you and your journey and uh, the work that you do. And um, keep up the great work, and I'll make sure to um, support best way I can with the study. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ju. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow me on Instagram at Immigrations. See you at the next episode.